Let's go to the Lord and ask Him to bless this time, and we'll excuse the kids to go downstairs. Father, we thank You for bringing the body of Christ together this morning. I thank You, Father, that You revealed Yourself to us in Scripture, and I ask that You would use Your words to transform us. Father, I thank You for each person here and how each one of us contributes to the health and the purpose of Your church. I ask, Father God, that you would see our hearts and that you would help us to be more like your son. I ask, Father, that you'd be with the children as they go downstairs, that they would be filled with the truth, that they would hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And I ask that you'd be with the parents, the helpers, the adults that are downstairs, and that you would help them passed on to the next generation the truth of the gospel. Father, thank you for the time we have as the body of Christ this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Children, off they go. (laughs) Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at a variety of different things about the church. And last week, I shared with you three ways that the church is unified. We're unified in our guilt, meaning that because we all have inherited sin nature from Grandpa Adam, we're all sinners. So we're united in that. Everyone in here is a sinner. We are also unified in salvation. Because if we're here this morning and we've accepted the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ... We're all saved the same way. There's only one way to be saved, and that's through Jesus. So we're unified in our salvation. We're also unified in our ability and our purpose of glorifying God because we have been saved by the blood of Jesus. We have that special place of being uniquely gifted to be able to glorify God like nothing else. Because we have been bought by the blood of Jesus. So we're unified in our glorification of God. We are the church. The church is made up of individuals, individual believers united for a purpose. And, I, and I, I singled out three purposes for us to think about this morning. There's more than these three, but I think these are three of the big ones. And the first one is glorifying God. That's who we are. That's what we're for. The church is made up of people that want to see God glorified. The second one is that we're we're united for building each other up. Ministry to other believers. Scripture is very clear that we're all to be helping one another and building one another up. That's our purpose. And the other one is that the church's purpose is to proclaim the gospel to the lost. Those are the purposes that we have as a church that we can't ignore. As the church functions, each believer is responsible for participating in the church. This is a very important aspect of who we are as the church. We are corporately the body of Christ. And we are also individual believers with responsibilities to pursue being more more Christ-like every day. So so there's an individuality and there's a corporate aspect. As the body of Christ functions, God receives the greatest possible glory 
because the bride of Christ is demonstrating our unity of being redeemed by the blood of Jesus. So as we individually come together as the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ, God gets incredible glory. Let's think about this, this idea. There's two ideas that, that kind of play in this. And, and the first one is that God loves individuals. He loves individuals. We talk that way when we do evangelism very often. He loves us so much. He formed each of us. If you don't believe that, we'll sit down and have a talk. God formed each one of us just the way he wanted to. Psalms 139, verse 13 and 14. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. There was to be a you. God meant you to exist. He's made each one of us unique and he made us individually. We don't think the same way. We have different desires, likes, and ambitions. None of us are the same. Y'all aren't like me. And that's a good thing. But we also have to put alongside of that the fact that, the, that Christianity is not a religion for lone rangers. So you've got the corporateness. You've also got the individuality. God places individuals into the corporate church. We've seen this verse many times. 1 Corinthians 12, 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Here we are, the body of Christ. And God loves each of us individually. And he also loves the church being all believers. Now these these two things... In one, in one sense, they, they don't seem maybe to go together. So how, how, how are you going to be an individual and corporate at the same time? There's really not a conflict. We need to get past that. And, and it's, it's actually pretty simple if we think in the terms of what God has done for each of us. Because each believer has been placed into the church with the expectation of functioning in a unified way as the body of Christ. So in your individuality, you are expected to be a part of the body. Individual believers growing in their relationship with God, maturing as believers, advancing in ministry and functioning in the church is one of Paul's big ideas. That's that's the emphasis he really makes in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. That you see that in Ephesians 4. And Peter agrees with Paul in 1 Peter 4.10. So within the church, within the body of Christ, there, there is a great diversity in the church. Aren't you glad that not everybody looks like Zach? I picked on his dad first service, so hey. Wouldn't it be weird if we all looked the same, thought the same, acted the same? That's not what God did. So within the church, there's this, this great diversity that functions, that has the purpose of God to function as the body of Christ. This means the corporate church must encourage, help, and teach individuals to be strong in their daily life, to believe what God says about who they are in the church. 
strong believers make a strong church. Each believer is responsible for promoting and maintaining a spiritually disciplined life. Knowing that the power to achieve a disciplined life doesn't come from inside of us, but it comes from the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, nobody likes to talk about discipline, and sometimes we might get confused. I'm not talking about the, you know, giving your kid a swat or punishment. That, that's one form of discipline. This is, this is the kind of discipline where you do A, B, C, D, and you do them at 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, whatever, okay? Now, I don't typically always function well that way. I like to make a plan for my day and then not follow it. Uh, that's that's kind of typically who I am, okay? Some hands went up, okay. The disciplined life is really vitally important. And to be disciplined as a believer is is so amazing because it increases our faith. It gives us, it helps us have a, a proper attitude. It changes how we think and how we act things out. So, so our thoughts and our actions are influenced by how we discipline our lives. Christian, uh, Christian disciplines develop a spiritual stability in our life. And we need that stability. Paul instructs us in, in having a disciplined life this way. He's writing to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. Train yourselves for godliness. So the training doesn't get us saved, but we're saved, so we're going to train ourselves. You follow me? The word there, train, it, it, in, your, in your Bibles, it could be train or discipline. It comes from the same word, gymnazo, and, and this is where we get our word, gymnasium. And it literally means to train or to exercise. And it was used especially for strenuous, self-sacrificing training of an athlete. So Paul's saying, I want you all to be athletes, spiritually. This goes along with a definition that I really like about being a disciple. What's a disciple? A disciple is a person who does everything possible to be just like their master. Just like their master. Who's our master? Jesus. So are we doing everything possible every day to be just like Jesus? That's who we are or should be as believers. Paul gives us some more of this idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. He says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Same idea in 1 Corinthians 4, 16. I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. This is huge. We imitate Christ and Paul and other believers who are imitating Christ. This is a challenge, though, because who's imitating you? Now, one thing that I think is very clear in all the years that I've been in the body of Christ is that once you become a Christian, people are looking at you. Are you, are you going to be just like Zeke? Now, what did that just do to Zeke? Just, Zeke just went... Meltdown. 
Seriously, who's watching you? What do they see in your life that says, he's like Jesus? Do you have anything? That's huge. Paul writes this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So are you an example? Does your life show, show up in such a way that, that people can go, I can, I can follow that person and be like Christ? That's the point. Now, there's lots of Christian disciplines. I'm going to pick on one today. Because this one is huge. It's important for how we live. It's even important if you want to improve your marriage. What's the one discipline? Solitude. Now, helping your marriage, that doesn't mean you get to leave your wife alone. And just, I ain't dealing with her. That's not what that means. Okay. Solitude is incredibly important. It's so important as a disciple of Christ, as a follower of Christ. And we see this discipline modeled by Christ repeatedly. This is huge. So as disciples, as believers, we imitate our master. And as we imitate him, we should take special note of how Jesus used solitude in his earthly life. He would withdraw to a place to be alone with God. This is a regular habit of the followers of Jesus. I, I'm going I'm to use four examples. I use four examples from the four Gospels. And I used all four Gospels because I want us to understand those men influenced by the Holy Spirit, all of them saw this as important. This is huge. This is what we need to imitate. Matthew Chapter 14, verse 23. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Mark 1, 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. Luke 6, 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. John 6, 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. <clears throat> so if our master is doing this, this is a practice that his believers, his disciples should also pursue. I think that it's probably easy for us all to agree that our lives are full of constant noise and distractions. Squirrel. Anybody go there? I mean, it's that, I, some of us are just like that. I mean, it's, whoa, whoa. It's difficult. I know in my life, it's difficult to find 20 minutes of quiet. Just 20 minutes of quiet. Living with all this stimulus, because that's really what it is. You're just constantly stimulated. Makes recognizing God's spiritual leading very difficult. There are many ways 
that believers um, that I've been around have, have found solitude and enjoy God's presence. For some, it's, it's a half an hour at the end of the day. For, for some, it's, it's that early morning quiet before the whole household comes to life. For some, it's, it's uh, I've, I've talked with some guys that are coming home from work and it's their quiet time. They're in their, their truck, turn the radio off, and they pray and they spend time with God. For them, that's, that's when that quiet time is. For some, it's taking a, a, a walk alone at lunchtime. For some, it's just saying, I'm not looking at the phone. I'm not listening for it. I'm putting that aside for a while. Where all these should take us is strategy. We, we, we must be strategic and intentional to have time alone with God. It's vital. So I want you to try something, and, and you're going to hear this twice this morning. This is your challenge, that you make solitude a habit and that you maintain that habit. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to intentionally do this. Some of you already are. Now, we see this all through Scripture because I think you can go through in many ways and find that God has always called His people to include times of retreating from the busyness of life to spend time only with our Father. He's made that a priority. He's, we see that. All this talk about solitude. Okay, so I want to make something very, very clear. And this is vitally important. Solitude doesn't mean isolationism. That's not what I'm getting at. Yeah, you're going to be alone. Isolationism is not what we're after. Here's one of the things that happens to, to me. You know, if I go anywhere, Zach and I have talked about this, and he's, he's learned this over the past few years. We go anywhere, we got a mark on our back. Because, you know, ah, pastor, well, and all the conversations go sideways. It's weird. So, so just last week, I was in a grocery store here in town, and I'm kind of interacting with this guy, and I was thinking, well, maybe this is an opportunity for me to share. I don't know, but this guy was interacting with me. And when guys interact, you know, what do you do? You know, and he, he's retired from the mine. Okay, great. Well, what do you do? I'm a pastor. This is, this is the quote. This is the first thing out of his mouth. He finds out I'm a pastor. So here's the quote. My church is the mountain. I don't, I don't need to be with people to be a believer. That is really close to a direct quote from this guy. Right? Confession to the pastor, right? Okay. What, 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 and this isn't the first time. This happens a lot. I hear this often. And what these people are saying is they don't want to participate in the biblical God-designed corporate church. They don't want to be part of that. But that's not biblical. That's not healthy. A healthy Christian life is not exclusively solitary and it's not exclusively communal. The two have to function together. That's why God wants us to understand this discipline. 
I really like this quote from um, Diedrich, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his work, Life Together. He writes this, One who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. Now, I've seen this in the churches I've pastored, and and I don't want to offend any of our older folks, but I especially see this in retirees who have retired and they end up doing nothing. And then they come and interact with me because life is all about them. They don't understand why they're depressed. And, and they're struggling. And the reason is they're, they're not involved. They're not a part of the vibrancy of, of the corporate church. That's true even if it's young people. Isolation is the path to stunted spiritual growth. And it produces disillusionment with the church. Both are very dangerous for believers. There is really very little we can do about becoming like Christ if we withdraw from the church. The same is true if we withdraw from the world. God uses other brothers and sisters to help us grow. And God expects each one of us to represent his kingdom to a dying world around us. We're all in this. Yes, we're individuals. And yes, there needs to be solitude, but there's a purpose for it. And this is what happens when you start looking deeper at the discipline of solitude. You find out that that in Christ's example... Solitude produces something. After Jesus retreated in solitude, he re-entered ministry. Solitude, ministry. Something's produced from the solitude. The goal of solitude is to prepare for greater and greater ministry to the body of Christ and to the lost world around us. In the examples of Christ's withdrawing, you, you find him accomplishing things. There's a withdrawal, and then, then you see these accomplishments. Things like preparing for spiritual warfare. This one's huge. When Jesus was about to begin his, his public ministry, he went to the wilderness. Matthew 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. He was hungry after 40 days. I always go, duh. So his solitude included fasting. And those 40 days and 40 nights were a preparation for what? It was a preparation for an incredibly intense spiritual battle with Satan. That's huge. What an incredibly intense battle. How did he prepare for that? Solitude. Another reason that we see in Christ's life for solitude was to regain physical and mental strength. And this one's cool because Jesus is seen in Scripture actually teaching this to his disciples. Mark 6, 31. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure 
even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. So Jesus taught them, and he recognized that they had to get away because there was so much going on, they weren't even getting to eat. The solitude strengthened them. Jesus also gives us an example of using solitude to escape the noise and the confusion of society simply to be alone with God. Luke 5.15, But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So picture what's happening. These great crowds were coming around Jesus, and, and, the, and everybody's fighting for an opportunity to get close to Jesus to get healed. Right? Great crowds, it says. Great crowds. So this is a lot of people. And all the noise and all of the confusion and all that stuff's going on. What's Jesus' response? I've got to get away for a while and be with my Father. That's what it means, places and pray. That's, what's he, that's the model. The lifestyle of Jesus teaches us the importance of this quiet time with the Father. And this is where it really becomes valuable for us. Mark 1.35, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place where he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. So he's in solitude. The priority in that solitude is praying. He's with his father. The disciples come and say, well, what's going on? And in that time with his father, he was setting up what he's going to do in ministry. This is huge for us. Paul gives us a really neat exhortation about the praying that should be going on in this solitude. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. When we are alone with God, Do we combine that with prayer for the people around us that are going to hell? Do you ever recognize that? Everywhere you go, you're around people who, without Christ, are going to go to hell. It should matter, and it should matter in how we pray. This idea of praying is huge in these times of solitude. And Scripture needs to be involved in that as well. Our principal way of communing to God is prayer, and His principal way of communicating to us is Scripture. So in our solitude, are we including the Word? There's a neat passage where Jesus teaches us about solitude and prayer. Matthew 6, 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut your door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, this this passage has been... Misused many times. And I really don't think it's that complicated. Let's start here. 
Jesus is not making a point about the location. I know a believer who got a hold of this and and all he could see was God wants a special location. So he went home and he cleaned out out the hall closet. He made the hall closet his room. And he said to his wife, this is my prayer closet. Didn't go over real big because there's all this stuff from the closet just sitting in the hallway. The point of... Of Matthew 6 isn't location. The point is heart. It's an attitude of our heart. The idea is to find the most private place you can find so you won't be distracted. It's not the location, it's the distraction. Squirrel. Right? I mean, what are the squirrels that you encompass or you encounter in your life? Wow. The idea is is to get along with God. And seclusion in prayer is important so we get our attention away from ourselves. That takes a little bit of time sometimes. We get away from the turmoil of the world. The distractions of other people. So we can do one thing. Concentrate on our Heavenly Father. That's what this is about. Keeping our attention on Him and Him alone. In Matthew 6, Jesus talks about there being a reward. Seize in secret will reward you. Okay, what's the reward? What's the reward there? And, and I believe more and more that... One of the great, there's many, I think there, you could put several different rewards into this, but I think one of the greatest ones, especially in the times we live in, is God's peace. All of the confusion and all of the, the stimulus, all the stuff we've got going on every single day, wouldn't it be nice just to have peace? And, and I'm not just talking about absence of war, I'm talking about internal peace. What is God's peace? God's peace. You ever thought about that? That's a cool, cool phrase. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious for anything, but in all things, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Wow, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. That's huge. This is God's peace. And what's it going to do? It's going to guard our hearts and our minds. Think about that peace. God's peace. It's perfect peace. Perfect's hard for us. Wouldn't you like to have a little bit of perfect peace in your life? For us to understand the peace of God, we must know God and we must think biblically. Those two have to go together. How do we do this? How do we discipline ourselves to do this? Well, solitude's where you, where you really work at this. And this idea of biblically thinking, this is particularly relevant in our society because our society is bizarre. And it, 
It focuses on emotions and pragmatism, not, not truth. People don't ask, is that true? Actually, they just respond, I saw it on the internet, it has to be true. They ask, how will it make me feel? You're going to find that more in our society than, is it true? How does it make me feel? And, and does this work? Our culture does not accept absolute divine truth. Truth is whatever works, and it could be different for anybody. And it, if it's really going to be valuable, it's going to produce positive emotions. Everybody wants to just feel good, whether it's true or not. But God is truth, and there are absolute truths. And in our times of solitude as believers, with God, we learn truth. That's what brings us peace. The peace of God comes when the believer spends time with the author of truth, the one who is truth. You want some peace in your life? Go be with God. God also, His character is peace. He's the giver of peace. He gives that peace to those who spend quality time with Him. God's peace is essential then for strength, tranquility, and contentment that's necessary for spiritual stability. Spiritual stability in the day we live is really important. The solitude of believers is implied by something else that we see in the New Testament, and that is that the church is described as being the bride of Christ. Jesus is the groom, the bridegroom. We're the bride, he's the bridegroom. Marriage, as we understand it from Scripture, is the joining of two into one. You with me? So using that marriage metaphor, that instructs us in the close relationship God desires with his people. Intimacy that involves this kind of relationship, this involved in this kind of relationship, it's, it's time spent. You know, if, if you don't ever spend time with your husband and your wife, tell me about your marriage. God wants this intimacy with us in our times of solitude. God knows us that way. He knows us in such intimate ways. He knows details of our lives, such as the number of hairs on our head. I had a couple of really obviously bald guys in the first... Oh, okay, Cody, you're the, you're the best example. God still knows the number of hairs on his head. Maybe it's only five. Oh, wait, I've got another one up here in front. He knows. He knows you that intimately. He formed you. He desired for there to be a you. And he desires for there to be special time with each one of us for a purpose. 
So the challenge for the functioning, put the phone down. Get away from all of the noise and the confusion and bask quietly in the presence of God. Wow. You want to strengthen the church? Spend time with God, knowing that he's preparing you for ministry. Spend time with God so you're stronger, refreshed, trained, passionate about ministry. Why ministry? Ministry's for Pastor Zach and Pastor Bill. Wrong. Every single believer is in ministry. Every believer ministers. And to minister well requires times of solitude with the Father with a goal to glorify Him through your ministry. Father, what do you want me to do so you'll be glorified? So the challenge that I have, I I mentioned it earlier, it's for all of FBC, all of us. Find 20 minutes at least. Some of you have got enough time on your hands, you could do an hour. You're my hero. Find at least 20 minutes a day alone with God. Prayer and the Word. And find out what God has for you and for His church. Father, I thank you that you made us the way we are, that you gave us your Word, that you bought and purchased us by the blood of your Son. Holy Spirit, stir us up in such a way that we are able to find the time to be alone with our Father, alone with our Creator. And Father, I ask that you would help us to see the truth, hear the truth, and know the truth. That we might enter into a new peace in our life because we know you. And we know you more and more every day. Father, thank you. Thank you that you love each one of us and you love the church. In Christ's name, amen.